This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we are going to dive into some of the science and data behind load management to really try to paint a complete picture of what that what that means what it is uh, there's been a lot of noise around it uh, especially from older players talking about it and fans lamenting it and so just wanted to give some justice to the science and the biomechanics and some of the data we have on that particular topic uh, but first before we get into that uh, a quick story I live here in Los Angeles and there are celebrities and public figures actors and musicians everywhere and you see them as part of your life you don't see them every day but it's you know it's sort of typical to end up in line next to them or uh, sitting next to them at a table or they walk in front of your car in the crosswalk or or things like that um, that's pretty standard and I have my brain does weird stuff it plays weird tricks on me that's why I end up writing books about how your brain plays tricks on you uh, my my brain thinks it sees celebrities everywhere and this has become somewhat of a running joke in my house with my wife especially where you know I tap her on the shoulder when we're out and I say like that's uh that's Omar Epps over there and you know she says oh no it's not Omar Epps and I say oh it's Mike Tomlin the coach of the Steelers she says no it's not Mike Tomlin it turns out to be like a five foot three guy who doesn't look anything like either of those people I mean it's absolutely ridiculous how bad I am at facial recognition from certain angle angles or how little patterns in people will make me think it's someone else even people that I know sometimes so it's pretty like 95% of the time I'm wrong um, it could even be higher it, it, it's it's somewhat comical so I'm out to lunch with my wife I mean, I'm out to lunch in general but um, I'm literally getting uh, lunch with her the other day and we're at a place where there's a bunch of different places to eat within, you know, like a 40-foot walking distance of each other. So we decide to do – I said I'll do Mexican, and she decides to get salad at one of these salad places, which is critical to what's about to happen in the story. So we end up meeting – the salad place has kind of outdoor seating and a lot more tables, and so we end up meeting there. And we eat our lunch at the salad place. And, you know, she has her salad. I have some Mexican. And I, I when I finish, I'm, I'm parched. She says, oh, there's water inside. So I go inside to get the water uh, and I come back. Now, the water's in like an actual glass. It's not a to-go cup you get here in California. I think that's pretty common for uh, sustainability reasons. We've got a glass. So I'm drinking out of a glass. I'm back outside at the table. And she says, oh, you know what I would love? I would love uh, like a boba tea got one of these awesome tea places nearby again 20 30 feet away just walking distance she says can you wrap up here and take care of things and i'll meet you in a second and i said sure so she goes to get the tea 
I I go to clean up the table and put everything away and resolve the business there. And the the first challenge, now that I'm thinking about it, is I encountered one of those recyclable compost trash choice options. Do you have do you have these where you are? Maybe you don't. Maybe this is like a California thing as well. But every time you go to throw something away in California, there is an abundance of options, and it's very difficult. I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to be putting my recyclables in the trash or my compost. There's there's a lot of options, and I can't figure it out ever. I feel very lost at that point. Um, they need better design or something. I don't know. So I'm there for a minute. I'm, I'm trying to make sure I get the containers in the right area. And uh, and I do that, and I turn around. I, I feel like I've won. I'm like, yes, I figured out the containers. I turn around. I'm walking out the front entrance. And then I realize... I'm still holding the glass of water. And again, this is this is a glass, so I have to I have to take this back inside. It's mostly empty and I thought, you know, maybe if I go back inside I'll get a little bit more water anyway. I'm still kind of thirsty. It's one of those days. So I turn around to go back inside and as I'm going through the door, my first thing that jumps into my brain is, "Oh, there's David Blaine opening the door for me." David Blaine, the magician, the street magician, street street magician, and he does all the stunts and things like that. And but I've learned to ignore this. I've learned to recognize that this instinct in my head is wrong almost every single time. It's so it's it's just a running joke at this point. The only thing is here we go we me, me and this guy opening the door. We do this dance where like I'm opening the door for him. We came out at the same time. I'm opening the door for him. He's kind of sideways coming out of the door because he's holding his lunch, his salad that he just ordered. And what ends up happening is we do basically like a complete flyby, a 360 of each other. So I start on the left side of his face or excuse me, the right side of his face and come all the way back to the left side. And I realize as we're, as we're turning around each other, like we're going, like we're entering into the hotel lobby in one of those circle things or something. I realize, like, wait a second. I, I think that is David Blaine and just blurt out like a confused 10 week old puppy as my head turns sideways. Like, David Blaine? It was, it was some sort of like, wait a second, it can't be you. Precisely because I thought two seconds ago that it was you. And I've learned to recognize that that is a foolish instinct. So he looks away very briefly. I don't know what he was looking for. I don't know if he was checking for paparazzi or I don't know. It was it was hilarious in the moment because he's very stoic, which is his on-screen personality as well. And he just kind of looks away and looked back with this sort of coy smile. And he said, yeah. And I just, I was like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I, I, I love all your, I used to watch all your stuff back, you know, all the, all the specials you used to do in the street. And we, you know, five seconds of dialogue like that. And he's not, he's like, oh yeah, and he's nodding and he, and he daps me up. He daps me up. And as I'm walking away, he says, uh, he says, hey, why don't I, why don't I come do some tricks for you? And I'm like, wait, did I hear that? Right? I'm like, right now? He's like, yeah, let me. Let me eat my lunch, and then I'll show you some tricks. Now, if, you're, if you've never seen David Blaine or you're not familiar with him, you can go on YouTube and check out a lot of his old street magic specials and things like that. But before I got into behavioral science, before I really got into the psychology of illusion and how all these things work, which I think are equally fascinating now that I 
know how a lot of them work. Uh, before that, I mean, I used to watch his specials when I was younger and just marvel at how uh, creepy good this guy was at magic. So this is a very surreal thing for, in a sense, David Blaine to be saying, why don't I just do some street magic on you just for you right here, right now? So I'm like, I'm like, okay, um, this is going to be interesting. So I go, I go grab my wife. First of all, the whole I see celebrities thing, uh, I see phony celebrities thing did not go over well there precisely because she's like, what do you mean? You didn't, you didn't see David Blaine. You saw someone who looked like David Blaine, but he doesn't. It took a couple minutes for me to explain. At a certain point, I just said, look, just, just come over with me. We'll hang out with David Blaine. As I'm trying to convince my wife. I'm like, just come back to the salad place with me and we'll hang out with David Blaine. He just wants to do some magic tricks for us. That's, that's all we have to do right now. Um, so, okay, so we go back over there. Uh, we actually ran into someone else for a few minutes. So um, we go back over there and I kid you not, he's, he's sitting there with one other person, quiet little place, no one else around. And he just says, pull up a chair, almost insists, you know, pull up. He's, he's, he's motioning. It's very sort of like um, uh, organic, like as he's eating, finishing his food, motion. He's like, you better pull up a chair, pull up a chair. Um, so we pull up a chair and he proceeds to do a good 10 to 15 minutes of card tricks for the two of us. Well, actually, I think the best part is that we pull up the chairs and the man reaches into his left pocket and takes out an unopened deck of cards uh, with the with the factory packaging and the ceiling still on. He's just walking around, not with any deck of cards, with a fresh, unopened deck of cards, takes it out, uh, hands it to me, has me open it, and proceeds to do a couple of his classic card tricks. Um, at one at one point, at one point, my 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 wife really likes to see if she can blow up the magician and get him to mess up the trick. So, you know, he said, "Pick a number between one and thirty. She says twenty nine. That's kind of a weird number for a ma- for a magic trick. And then he's like higher or lower, and she's like, "What do you mean higher or lower?" And I'm sitting there watching this. 60 second exchange back and forth where David Blaine and my wife are arguing about what it means, not arguing, they're they're just going back and forth on some wordplay, magic trick, game psychology, gamesmanship on picking a number higher or lower than 29 for this card trick. So um, that was awesome. He was he was incredibly nice and cordial and it was surreal to just realize how similar it felt to being in the trick on TV. So, yeah, that was that was my wild Wednesday. Thanks to him, he was again, he was super friendly. And yeah. Okay, let's let's talk about some basketball. That's what we're here for. Can't can't ever talk about anything other than basketball. Boy, now that I think about that, if we're referencing people back to this podcast for information on load management, they're always going to have to listen to that quirky David Blainster. What have I done? What have I done? I haven't done a solo pod in a while, and this is what happens when I'm left to my own devices just to talk to myself at my desk. Oh, boy. Um, Load management. If you check out The Athletic today, both John Hollinger and Jovan Buha and Sam Amick all sort of commented on this topic from a different perspective. And I think it's important to kind of note 
all of the different perspectives here before we take off. By the way, wonderful pieces from those guys. And actually, now that I think about it, The Athletic is the sponsor of today's podcast. And so if you don't have The Athletic, you want to get them, sign up right now. You can get 50% off and a free month trial so you can read exactly what I'm going to reference here in a second. Just go to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That helps support the podcast when you do that. And you can sign up there through that URL. You'll get 50% off. You'll get a free month. And so you can go check out this Hollinger article. And one of the things he talks about is the cases for Memphis internally, how a front office and a team would look at a player in these situations. So you have the medical staff, you have the coaching staff, and you have management in addition to the player himself. himself. And so you're trying to get this perspective of what's best for the team, what's best for the player. We have long-term aspirations. We have the season. We have more than just this game in mind. He also has a really interesting point in there. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, on AAU minutes and how younger players are playing more, and so they seem to have more wear and tear on their bodies when they enter the league. The Kawhi issue specifically, which came up this week and probably lit the fire under this topic, the Kawhi issue really gets into this idea of like load management versus injury management. Is load management completely preventative or prehabilitative, or... Is it something that you do once you already have an injury? In Kawhi's case, I thought this was brilliant insight. Again, if you if you already have the athletic, go on over there and check it out. If you don't use that thinking basketball, uh, theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod, theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod. Go on over there, check that out. Because the the point that one of the big takeaways that they hit on in talking about the Clippers and the league's role in this is that Kawhi isn't really being load managed in the way that, say, LeBron James was or has been for many years where he sits or takes night off, nights off or rests. I mean, obviously, the Spurs were famous for this with their players and some of their aging stars over the years resting them preventatively just to keep their load down. But in Kawhi's case, there's actually something a little richer, which is that he has an injury. He has the, the, the tendinopathy in his leg going back a couple years. They have a great nugget in the piece, by the way. And I didn't even realize this. Kawhi Leonard has not played in a back-to-back game since April 5th, 2017. That's coming up on three, that's, you know, three seasons ago. And so... The, he is in essentially a program, in an injury management program, which is slightly different than load management and just being completely preventative. So anyway, there's, there's a lot more great stuff in there. Uh, I love that I can you know just pop open the athletic app. They've been, again, kind enough to sponsor this pod, and I just pop it open in the morning, and boom, right there, two really, really insightful pieces sort of covering the court here, if you will, on load management, uh, thinking basketball, theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod, 50% off, free month trial. They got a bunch of great writers like Hollinger, like Sam Amick, many others. They also have, also have local coverage. They have co- coverage for other sports if you're into that. I like the fact that I can customize my app. It's got no ads. It's got no pop-ups. And, of course, you help support this show and everything thinking basketball 
when you sign up over there. So that's one perspective. Then there's the idea of just reducing the amount of stress on a player's body. And hopefully for obvious reasons. If we were to play someone 48 minutes a night, 82 games, they might be able to do it, even if they could hold up. But it's an incredible strain and stress on the body to accumulate that kind of wear and tear, precisely because of what happens on a possession in an NBA game. Like Guys need to rest for cardiovascular reasons, but they also rest because of what we would essentially think of as accumulated fatigue or accumulated stress. Your body, when it adapts to anything, you ask it to do something, you try to run a mile, you swim, you lift weights, whatever, it, you create a stress response when you fatigue, and then when you recover from that fatigue, uh, that is essentially how you grow. That's adaptation. That's what we, what we think of as growth or learning or getting stronger, getting quicker, getting faster. So when you play basketball, you are incurring stress on your body. That means your joints, uh, primarily your joints, um, you know, your entire nervous system, things like this. And so playing 48 minutes a night is extremely taxing. Hopefully that's obvious. So for the history of basketball, except for one season, uh, everyone has rested for at the very least just the most obvious reasons of, you know, not running yourself into the ground and making it impossible for you to perform when you're actually on the court. That one season, of course, was 1962. Wilt Chamberlain, who ended up averaging over 48 minutes a game because of overtime. And as I've said in previous pieces and articles about him, the thing to understand there is that Wilt Chamberlain was not uh, the greatest endurance athlete ever created. He couldn't be running sub-two-hour marathons if he decided to switch to long-distance running. The point there, the, the, like he's a, great, he's a great cardiovascular athlete. That's a fine takeaway. But he's not an outlier relative to all his peers. And so instead, what was happening was Chamberlain's per-minute exertion, his stress on his body, what we think of as load and load management or workload or things of, you know, whatever you want to call it, was smaller than a typical player in most other given times. And the reason for this, you can see it when you watch the film. There's limited films of his games, but it is extremely apparent if you watch the film. I don't even understand how you could come up with a counter argument for this. Wilt ran from one block to the other block. That's what he did. So he's an extreme case on the other end where he runs down the court. Uh, there isn't a lot of stopping and starting. And his stress or his workload on his body is getting from one end of the court, slowing down, stopping, posting up, you know, maybe jostling for position a little bit, a little bit more of an anaerobic thing, trying to push the guy behind you, fighting for an inside post up or something. And then he runs down to the other end and he kind of roams or hangs around in the lane. Because back then, there wasn't a lot of switching. The game wasn't as spaced and stretched out. There wasn't as much side-to-side -side activity. So you very much just had a guy kind of jogging up and down the court. Maybe he sprinted every once in a blue moon. But for the most part, uh, jogging or running up and down the court from a spot to a spot. So that's one extreme. Another extreme might be, I'm trying to think of a 
good player to embody this. Mark Madsen, Mad Dog, Walter McCarty would come in the game and run around like a crazy person. Um, Marcus Smart does it to a certain degree. I got Manu Ginobili. The guys that when they played, the pedal was at the floor. The accelerator was pressed down to the floor. And, and meaning they ran around all the time. They stopped and started. They cut. They sprinted. They jumped more. And that's really the recipe for accumulating workload in this case. So if you think about the old force equals mass times acceleration, the bigger you are, the more force you need to start and jump and stop, right? Deceleration is a huge deal. If you're sprinting down the court or you're cutting and you have to change directions or stop on a dime, you need force to do that. You need to put the brakes on. And when you slam on the brakes, that of course can take an enormous toll on your joints as well. I uh, I don't have a meniscus in my right knee. And so that's just like cartilage, the meniscus in that case with the knee, that's that's shock absorption. That's like that's brake padding or something. And so when you wear that down, or in my case when you don't have it, then the force is distributed through the joints. So we're really talking about acceleration, deceleration, cutting, jumping and landing. Those are the huge factors. I'm not a I'm not a biomechanics expert. I'm not a physicist. If someone can add to more, I'm, I'm sure they can. That would be fantastic. But from my understanding, those are the big factors that we're going to have in play here in basketball. So if we look at certain data, it might we the first thing we might say is minutes per game. Do minutes per game accurately represent? how much of a workload someone is taking on. Of course not. That's what we just went through. You can have very extreme differences in the time you spend on the court. So it's not about time. Standing in place on the court or standing in the corner or weighing 180 pounds and never cutting and decelerating and jumping and standing in the corner, you know, that's very different than weighing 260 pounds and constantly doing those things every second you're on the court. So a minute-to-minute is not equal among players, and certainly not among players across time. What about possessions? Are possessions, the number of possessions, better than minutes? Well, maybe to a certain degree, because that gives us an idea of how often you run up and down the court, an approximation. Sometimes you can change ends on free throws or something like that. So that gives us some idea. By the way, there were more free throws in the past than there are today. So basically that what that means is you have more rest time in the past and the more of the pace, you know, when you look at something like pace of the game, how many possessions does a team average every 48 minutes, more of that pace would be spent or dictated by shooting free throws. So free throw rate today, that is uh, the ratio of free throw attempts to field goal attempts. This season, we're very early in the season and and fouling and referees are doing their thing. So it's at about 0.27, 0 0.28. Uh, it's been 0 0.26, 0 0.25 in the past. And it hasn't been at 0 0.3 for about eight years. It was last at 0 0.3 
back in 2012. No, no, no. Correction. 2011. I can't read numbers. I can't see faces. It's amazing I can make it through the day. Um, It used to be much higher, though. So in the late 80s, it was 0.34, 0.33. And that was its peak in the three-point era. Uh, Even in the 90s, there was a season, you know, 0.33, 1996. 0.32, 1994. So even from just from that, like possession to possession, if you think about north to south, counting up all of the the distance you're covering north to south and the exchanges from north to south, the speed of the game per possession, even pace there does not equate it perfectly. Um, My understanding from sampling games, and I won't get too into the nitty-gritty details here, but my understanding is that even just transition possessions now are about 15% faster, meaning meaning everyone getting down the court about 15% faster than the way it was uh, 30 years ago. What that all means is that if we were to look at the miles run, like we can go from minutes to possessions, the number of possessions, and then if we looked at distance and we said, okay, now we have distance. Does distance tell us everything? Well, distance tells us more. I'll talk more about it in a second. But even if we were to look at distance, uh, minutes per game, possessions, and we put those in a blender, we might still say, boy, it doesn't look like LeBron's load is that high. But the other thing to remember is how much he weighs, how he plays. That's, that Maybe that'll be on a t-shirt, how much he weighs and how he plays. Um He's just moving more weight than a smaller player. He's exerting more force to move that weight. And these explosive actions where he's constantly starting and stopping and dunking on people or his acceleration in transition. I mean, I've said this before. I don't think it's a secret. I don't think it needs much more attention here. He's the greatest transition scorer in the history of basketball. He's a runaway freight train in in transition. And there's very few things like the sight of LeBron James ramping up his speed with all that mass in the open court it's crazy he looks like he gets shot out of a cannon even at the old tender age of 34 so all of that contributes to workload beyond just some of those basic numbers certainly beyond minutes even beyond possessions and even beyond distance traveled now we can still look at distance traveled to get an idea that players are accumulating more side-to-side movement or um, you know up-and-down movement throughout the course of a game. So, for instance, we have, this is our seventh season of tracking data, and you can put together this tracking data to start to kind of budget out or build how much load a player is under, how much stress their body is under from these kinds of movements. We don't yet have... Uh, jumping we don't have that final dimension of verticality cameras don't pick that up but they probably will someday and we can add that but we do have things like acceleration we know a player's weight we can see him move around the court in two dimensions but even just the number of miles players are moving throughout the course of a game is going up in the last few years so for instance in 2014 the average for all players who played at least 400 minutes, just basically all players in the league, was 
3.36 miles covered every 48 minutes they were on the court. So again, that per unit of time, that minute, is not equal across players and across time. And in 2019, last season, that was up to 3.62 miles per 48 minutes. That's the average player. So 3.36 up to 3.62. If you're trying to get a feel for how far that is, it's basically about 850 feet. It's about nine times the length of the court. So in the exact same amount of time that players were playing five, six, seven years ago, guys are covering the length of the court nine extra times. So if you think about them running a race over the course of 48 minutes, the average player is now nine basketball courts ahead of where the old average player was five or six years ago. Those players, by the way, move more than stars. Guys who play a lot of minutes move less. And this is something we should expect because of everything I was talking about earlier with stress on the body and exertion and cardiovascular output. If the more you play, a la Wilt Chamberlain in 1962, that very extreme example, the more you have to pace yourself, the less you can always have the accelerator on the floor. So that's a trade-off. So when Manu Ginobili used to come in, that sort of sixth man, limited minute style fit very well with him because he was just a pedal to the metal kind of player. Constantly moving, cutting, coming around screens, very, very engaged. Now, there seems to be two choruses here working against load management. The first is players, former players, talking about, you know, back in my day, we had to walk to school in the snow, six miles, three feet of snow, barefoot, uphill, both ways, that kind of thing. And, you know, then there's certainly the fans and the fan experience. And it was the wonderful Doris Burke the other day on ESPN who said she thought it was ridiculous. Kawhi wasn't playing. That's okay. Doris is still... uh, Can we get a petition to get Doris on the Thinking Basketball podcast. I mean, really, she's it's number one for me. Number one guest. Um, that would be awesome. Where was I? Uh, oh, it's right. She said the other night she thought it was ridiculous. So uh, outside of her, I think most of the public chorus is from these players in the yesteryear, the 80s or 90s, voicing, you know, back in my day, we didn't do this. Um What I find ironic about that is that, again, if you look at both the data and the film, you will notice that the era from, you know, that period from late 90s, early 2000s is the slowest period in NBA history or since the shot clock in 1955. And furthermore, the illegal defense era, which I've also called the isolation era, other people have called it that as well, ran from the 80s through the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And that era was signified by a tremendous amount of isolation basketball, clear out basketball. You had illegal defense. So 
They figured out it was like the Philadelphia 76ers' entire offense with Charles Barkley. But many other teams ran versions of this when they had a star player. The league stretched out. You had expansion. And so you had fewer really good players on teams. And so to try, you know, you'd start running your offense through more guys and you would give them the basketball and you'd have four other people stand on the opposite side of the court outside the three-point line, above the th- above the free-throw line, whatever, and just watch them go to work. There was not a lot of movement in these offenses. There was not a lot of screening. There was just less pick-and-roll and movement in general to a substantial degree, even just 10 or 15 years ago, let alone during this isolation, illegal defense era in the 80s and 90s. And it's the players in the 80s and 90s who played in some of the slowest games with some of the least amount of activity with some of the least amount of cutting and movement and screening and the most isolation we've probably ever seen in the history of the sport, who are the ones saying, you know, back in my day, I played 40 minutes a game. Playing 40 minutes a game today is a lot harder than playing 40 minutes a game yesterday, but not just literally yesterday, you know, 30 years ago. Um, But the other component of this piece and this was mentioned to me on Twitter, of course, is the fan component, where part of the fan experience is you want to see players and stars. And so when you buy a ticket to a game, then you can't see that fan. And that's a bummer. As someone who wanted to constantly see Larry Bird play as a kid after his back injury in 88, it was uh, you know, unfortunate for me to constantly miss him when he was nursing his back at the end of his career. And so I can relate to that. But I also think that there's probably a workaround, which is that if you have a guy, like this is where the Kawhi Leonard situation is subtly different. If a guy is already injured and kind of building back up to speed or trying to make sure he doesn't aggravate an injury but continuing to play, because, you know, we're not talking about someone playing 20 or 30 games a season. He's still playing 55, 60, 65 games a season. Stars are still playing 70, 72, 75 games a season. Then occasionally you're going to miss a game when you have a ticket. And I think it's a valid question the league might want to consider to think about, can we have some sort of injury announcement that's more in advance um, so people aren't going to that game and being incredibly disappointed? I think that's a viable thing. I don't know how they could solution it specifically, but I think it's certainly something to look into. As far as the national TV games, those schedules are set in place in advance, and guys are injured and missing time. Zion Williamson's out. That that happens all the time. And so if you're not going to flex a game out of one of those spots, I think that's just cost of doing business. But I should point out that having worked in research and talking to, you know, having talked to humans on the ground for years on these kinds of things, we still should establish how many fans and ticket holders this actually upsets to a significant degree before making changes. Because what happens a lot of times is 1% of consumers are flaming mad about something, but 99% don't mind. And you don't need to shift or overhaul the product just for those 1%. I'm not saying it's 1%. I'm just saying I don't know. And I don't think any of us know how many people are really, really aggrieved by Kawhi Leonard not playing back-to-backs or any stars occasionally sitting out 
when the schedule is more demanding. That's what medical staffs are trying to do. They're trying to put the player in a position to succeed in the long term because, well, it may be unfortunate for the team and the fans on that given night to not have star player in question. It's far worse to not have that star player in the playoffs because he's had a catastrophic injury, to only play 40 games instead of 65, or to play two seasons instead of 10. That's the ultimate goal here. Overall, long-term success, best for the team, best for the player. Before I get out of here, I wanted to address uh, some questions I've seen lately about true shooting percentage and some of the quirks or variations around it that I've seen these questions over and over, so I wanted to get to them. The first one comes from Ease Dooley, at Ease Dooley on Twitter. And Ease Dooley asks, when two players have the same true shooting percentage, player one only shoots twos and player two only shoots threes, do they really have the same efficiency? There will be more rebounds and fast break opportunities when one shoots twos versus threes. Should we adjust for this? Um, I have played with adjusting for this, and the short answer is, no, we don't really need to adjust for it. I think I think the thing to really keep in mind with true shooting percentage is just like with field goal percentage, it is just still a measure of the thing. Points divided by, you know, points per shot or scoring attempts. You know, field goal percentage is number of field goals made per number of field goals taken. And so you're still, true shooting percentage is still just going to be that measurement. That doesn't mean that it accounts for your teammates or whether they're all layups or whatever. And so, as I've said before, it's not the kind of thing that I think we need to be overly concerned about one percentage point precision or something. We can use real true shooting percentage on and ones versus the estimate. You know, it might be half a point percentage difference. Not a big deal. I don't think that's the kind of thing we're, we're talking about diminishing returns when we spend our time worrying about that kind of stuff. The twos and the threes, it turns out because of the way teams rebound three point shots and two point shots. And then if you start looking at the math on, uh, you know, defensive possessions, um, when you've just missed a two versus a three, well, if you miss a layup, you often have a five on four going the other way. The other team's offensive efficiency spikes basically anytime you miss a layup and that's probably because your guy's stuck 100 feet 95 feet away from his own basket so there's all sorts of little trade-offs in these kinds of things and again I've run numbers and with the exception of very extreme situations they still kind of even out the threes and the twos and the rebounds and the locations and getting back on defense it still pretty much evens out it's not something I would worry about very similar topic uh, comes from Jeff Siegel of the wonderful Peachtree Hoops. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, check it out, Peachtree Hoops. And he asks, uh, you know how sites are starting to take heaves out of players' field goal attempt numbers unless they go in. So you remove the heaves at the end of quarters and things like that. He says, I think we should do that for tip-ins as well. And I think it's the same kind of situation if you start kind of taking out the offensive putbacks or the layups someone gets when a teammate helps them or something like that, then you're no longer measuring true shooting percentage. Like the recent video I did talking about Dwight Howard's 
resurgence to start the year, you know, his true shooting, his true shooting percentage is astronomical right now. And Tyson, Tyson Chandler had 70% true shooting percentage in Dallas or whatever that number was, it was enormous. And so you still want to preserve the measurement, I think, so you can actually talk about the measurement. But this kind of adjustment gets to something different, which is like, uh, I want to talk about isolation scoring, or I want to talk about all the shots, how efficient a player is in the half court when his teammates don't set him up for layups or when he's not putting back offensive rebounds. I've done that stuff before. I have I have stats and measurements and, you know, half court scoring, all that kind of stuff. I've done that. But so there's nothing wrong with going down that road. But I just think we have to be clear as a community when we talk about the sport, you know, what the stat, what the measurement really means. An assist, we can talk about what an assist means and unpack it, but it's still the the thing we have as an assist is still an assist. We don't need to change that per se at this moment. We understand what it means and we understand what field goal percentage and true shooting means. But if you wanted to, yes, I think to where Jeff is going here, if you wanted to explore something that was more about like self-generated isolation half-court scoring, then I would look at taking out things like that that are possibly a different dimension because offensive rebounding to me is more of a almost like an off-ball, an off-ball kind of scoring because you followed up on someone else's generated shot or possession. You didn't need the basketball for it. I, I actually have that qualm in general when people talk about scoring. So when they talk about a great score, I think what they often mean, which is fine, we just want to be clear on the terms we're using, I think what they often mean is something like a great self-generated half-court score. So they downgrade LeBron, they watch LeBron and his half-court scoring isn't as you know good as, I don't know, Michael Jordan or whatever. Pick, pick any of your great half-court scorers. But they discount him because of how good he is in isolation. And what I'm saying here, especially when we look at something like true shooting percentages, we want a measure that captures all of those things so we can look at it at that level. But if we wanted to change levels on scoring... We just want to be clear about that, and we would do stuff like partition out offensive rebounds, or many people have done studies that look at only unassisted scoring versus assisted scoring. By the way, I think you have to be really careful there because uh, there's a difference between a guy setting you up for an open shot and coming off a screen and doing work without the ball that almost anybody in the league can screen for you. Those are very different things. But that's a conversation for another day. Just want to uh, address that on true shooting percentage. Leave that there. Hope you've enjoyed this one. Um, again, thanks to The Athletic for sponsoring. Is theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod for the free month trial. 50% off. It's a great deal. That's it for me. I hope you've enjoyed this one. Look forward to your feedback and conversation about this on Twitter, especially my bizarre David Blaine story. Thanks, as always, to Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball if you want to support this podcast, YouTube channel, any of the work that I do. And if you are in the deluxe tier, the 2020 box score that we do over there will be up on backpicks.com 
shortly it's going to have your estimates of shot created passer rating box plus minus model all kinds of other stuff i've added some bells and whistles to it this year and that will be up this week for ooh, how about a teaser uh the number one player in that model right now after two and a half weeks in the nba is Giannis Atenacupo, whose numbers and box plus minus and offensive box plus minus in that model are all up from his 2019 MVP season. So look for that. That's coming shortly. Thanks again for listening. And as always, I hope you are having a great day.